Hello, and welcome to the Data Science Happy Warriors podcast. I'm your host, Matt Pettis. Today, I want to talk to you about failure, failure in data science projects. I want to talk about anticipating failure and accounting for it and dealing with unanticipated failure. So let's start with anticipating failure. There are a lot of inspiring quotes about failure, learning from failure, and so on. The ones I, I mostly see are the ones meant to console you after you failed. On preparing for failure, though, I, I really like the following quote. This one's from uh, The Shawshank Redemption. You know the movie, probably. It's been on TV, and you'll stay up late nights watching it. But this is actually from the short story itself. It, was, didn't, it wasn't included in the actual movie itself. There are really only two types of men in the world when it comes to bad trouble, Andy said, cupping a match between his hands and lighting a cigarette. Suppose there was a house full of rare paintings and sculptures and fine old antiques, Red. And suppose the guy who owned the house had heard that there was a monster of a hurricane headed right at it. One of those two kinds of men just hopes for the best. The hurricane will change course, he says to himself. No right-thinking hurricane would ever dare wipe out all these Rembrandts, my two Degas horses, my Jackson Pollocks, and my Paul Cleese. Furthermore, God wouldn't allow it. And if worse comes to worst, they're insured. That's one sort of man. The other sort just assumes that the hurricane is going to tear right through the middle of his house. If the weather bureau says the hurricane has just changed course, this guy assumes it'll change back in order to put his house at ground zero again. This second type of guy knows there's no harm in hoping for the best as long as you're prepared for the worst. So let's talk about just common ways that data science projects can fail. These are the ones you want to know about before getting out of the gate. So what are those common ways they can fail? And what can we do about them? So when I think about data science projects that fail, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is data access problems. You can talk to a client, you can work out the type of modeling for them that you want to do, paint a great picture in the sky of what they want, shake hands, and then you walk down the hall, talk to the IT group, and it can all just stall out there. The IT group might just tell you that they don't have the data, or they have the data, but you're not allowed to see it. Okay, they have the data. You are allowed to see it, but it's archived and will take a long time for you to get at it. In all these cases, you're just kind of screwed. All of your work hinges on having data. This is data science. You can't do anything without having data. So what do you do about this? Well, the first way is to prep for this. If you've done this enough times, you know that this is a very common occurrence. So two ways to prep for this. First, ask to have the IT gatekeepers in the room with you and the client for at least part of the discussion. And when the client in the room, make sure you ask, can I get that data? And then look at the IT people in the eye and make sure that they answer that question. And make sure they know which data you're talking about. Can I get this? Yes, no. Make sure the client and they look each other in the eye and say, yes, that data will come to you. Next, with the client, make all of your work contingent on getting the data. That needs to be made explicit at the very outset. So you say, can you get the data? Yes. You know that I can't do my work without getting the data. Uh-huh. Make sure you get that down on paper, or at least make that agreement really, really explicit. Another way that the project can fail is overambition in the project. When I was in college, I had a physics lab class where we were supposed to conduct a research experiment of our choice. I chose to map the magnetic fields around a superconductor, starting from scratch. After two straight weeks of sleepless nights of frustration over getting anything to work, I was allowed to revise my project to actually just make a 
superconductor. So effectively, I laid out these grand plans and I just fell flat on my face. This, however, really was a good failure on my part. Uh, I was a student. No, no, there was no life and death actually hanging on my getting this project done. It was a school project. I learned later from the department that part of the intent of this course wasn't to necessarily get you to do the lab work. It was to get you to do lab work. It was for you to actually do the experiments. But another part about this that was really baked in that they understood was that you were supposed to learn what good scope was for you. What can you bite off? How much work goes into it? So you're supposed to appreciate, you know, this is a lot of work. It's not just, you know, oh, do the experiment. Is what actually goes into experiment. So they wanted you to start and make a grand plan and then actually fall on your face. Not because they're mean, because they want you to really have an experience where you could appreciate how much work went into it and then fail in a very safe spot where you know there weren't lives on the line for what you did. This experience of trying to map the magnetic fields of a superconductor and then barely even being able to make the superconductor itself and even that with a lot of help from a very kind professor in the lab was a huge, was a huge benefit to me. This experience of, of making grand plans, but then falling flat on my face and barely able to get out the bare minimum of work at this, this physics lab experiment has really served me well in data science. What it taught me was that one of the things you should really do in a, in a project is you need to make a range of goals or deliverables that are actually achievable from really low probability of failure or high probability of success to you know, smaller probability of success, but more overarching, more long-reaching stretch goals for what you need to do. But they all need to be built in your project so you have a range of things that you have accomplished, things you have an okay chance of accomplishing, and some real good stretch goals to say, if you get this, this is a really good thing. But if you fail at those upper end goals, you actually still have some other things that were delivered. That's important in a data science project because you don't want to have an all or nothing sort of approach to it. You want to make sure that you have at least some success there so that you have something to show for what you've done. For instance, always make a visualization as a deliverable if you can. This comes from an old boss of mine, Wendy Foslin. In many cases, this solves a lot of the problems that your client may have. I mean, think about it. One of the things that you do as part of data science work is figure out how to assemble and to summarize data. You make visualizations for yourself to understand relationships and test hypotheses. Even if these don't pan out for you for your model building activities, your client may find a use for them. So make it a thing that you do for them as part of your work, as part of your deliverable. Even if you fail your model building, those associations might be really useful to them. There are more non-world-beating neural network deliverable things that may be useful as part of a data science project that you deliver to a client. For instance, part of doing a data science project is getting the data into a model, which might mean, which often means getting a disparate set of data flowing into your model. That data engineering flow itself may be of value to the client. Remember, as part of your experiment, you're likely putting together pieces of data that they have never actually put together before. You have to engineer that as part of your process. That itself, even if your model fails, might be useful to the client. When I worked at a, uh, a former company, one of the things that we had to do for the company was to go into the, each individual company and make them make a data flow to pull into our system. And I told the CEO, I said, we, we should actually charge, even though we're making them do the work, we have to put the interface together and say, you need to comply to these interfaces. We should actually make sure they know the value of us making them do that for themselves and for us, because they actually gain, can gain insights from that data flow that they've put together that they've never had to put together in that way before. 
you need to make it explicit that even just assembling data and knitting it together, that is a value that you can deliver to a client. Find relations, even if you can't model the predictions and make a good model out of it. Even if you can't do it, subject matter experts might find value in the relationships that you find, and they can use them, even, like I said, even if you can't. Another useful thing is to confirm or disconfirm hypotheses of experts. Even if you don't replace their judgment for what they're doing, your skill in data assembly might get them to stop wasting time on hypotheses that they could not prove or disprove. On that last point, part of the value you can, you can bring to a, to a client is just stopping wild goose chases by their experts. I worked with some material engineers once. I, I tried to discover what was making their process break. They had a process of manufacturing. They wanted to know what was going wrong. I, I ultimately failed. That's another story. But in the end, I also wrangled data together in a way that disproved some of their theories. And they were happy with that. They would sit around the lunch table with each other, experts with experts, three or four of them sitting around saying, how do you think this process is working? Well, I think it works like this. But the problem was when they argued, it would just be arguing. They'd come back and have the same arguments over and over again, day after day. Through years, I found out that they had these arguments. The problem was they just couldn't bring evidence to bear to show that one of them was right. Or when a hypothesis was on the table, they couldn't quite get all the data together. You can be that bridge. You can say, are these your hypotheses? Even if you can't make a predictive model, you can, you can bring the data together for them to say, well, if this is your hypothesis, this does or does not support your ideas. And that's helpful because it helps them put that theory to bed. Either it's something that's fruitful they should continue on or they need to just cut it and forget it and move on and find other ways to further their knowledge or to find better models of what's going on. Another way to mitigate failure in a data science project is to think very hard and pull from experienced experts all of the possible ways in which your data science project could fail. You may not know all of them, but other people might. And the thing is, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. Many industries have faced this very same obstacle and have come up with the ways to organize the ideas to best address them, the ideas of how things can actually fail. Again, courtesy of my industry-experienced former boss, Wendy Foslin, I'll give you two examples of how this can actually be done. You can consult Google for more details on these particular uh, approaches. First, you can do thing, a thing called creating a fishbone diagram. This is also known as a cause and effect diagram or an Ishikawa diagram. I'll use the term fishbone because it's, it's more descriptive and it's the way I learned it. The core of the idea is to take a particular failure possibility, write it down on a piece of paper, draw a box around it, and then draw a horizontal line with that box on one end of that horizontal line. Then you start to think about the major categories of causes of that particular failure that you, you put a box around. As you think of them, draw lines at an angle connecting to the first line you drew on the box and label those lines with the categories that you come up with. It's called, this is why it's called a fishbone diagram because as you draw those lines off the other lines to, to give supporting evidence for what your causes of failure are, you start to draw out something that looks like a, uh, like a fishbone, like a fish skeleton itself. Now, you can begin to detail those causes that you drew on the diagonal, adding more lines which you can use to label with the details of the secondary causes that led to those primary causes. Again, Google fishbone diagram to see examples, see actual examples of what a good fishbone diagram for a problem looks like. You can do this alone or with a group. 
And I'll be honest, actually, when I've actually done this, my experience of all my failures makes my fishbone diagram look like a prehistoric super predator skeleton, actually. So you can actually start to detail when what a problem is for a data science project, how it can go wrong, and lay out all the possibilities so you can actually address them. A second method is to use failure mode effects analysis. Again, Google this. It's a pretty involved process, so it'll be very high level. The basic idea is that you identify a list of functions that need to be performed as part of this exercise, such as data acquisition or model building as part of your data science project. You then assign three scores to this function. Now these three scores cover things like severity, how if something fails, how bad is it to the project? Uh, occurrence, which is a, a ranking of how likely is the event to happen? And the third is detectability, which is how likely is it to detect or to even apprehend what's going on in your model? Again, like I say, I'm not going to go into the three different scores and how it works in, in detail, but effectively you write down your failure points, you assign some scores to them depending on the category of severity, probability, and how detectable it is, and you start to use those with a formula to rank which ones you need to address and how to address them. The point of that is, is that they make you write down what's actually going on or, or what your possible failure modes are. So even if you don't follow the formulas correctly or you have a hard time assigning them, the point of the whole exercise is to sit down and partially, the partial point is to actually sit down and write out what your possible failure modes are. So again, that's failure modes effects analysis. If you really wanna use it as a team, Going through, it's been used in, in manufacturing industries for a long time, such as auto and aerospace uh, manufacturing. Look it up and see if it applies to you or if it's something that you could actually use within your team. To be frank, I have not used failure mode effects analysis to plan a data science project itself. Uh, though I do think it is uh, very applicable to analyzing the problems of hosting a real-time model in production, just like an in industry for aerospace or for manufacturing, to talk about a process that has to be up and reliable, it's, it's a useful exercise for things like that. It may be so-so for data science itself, but it's worth looking at because part of what you do as a data science process often is to actually put your model into production. So it's worth looking into as a way of keeping track and accounting for all the possible ways that can fail. If that's an important part, which it probably will be, of your data science process. Okay, so what about unanticipated failure? This is the hardest to deal with, the hardest to talk about. And this is also why much of the prep that we just talked about for anticipating failure is really important. What do you do when you're standing in front of the clients with a blown back hair and your burned off eyebrows because your project blew up in your face? Well, one thing to do is to look for a pivot. Now, I dislike this term originally as it frankly sounds really weaselly but you always wanna recover something from your project. So you may have to look for value from something that, from something other than what you had actually planned for or, or originally planned for. You'll need to be creative in this actual phase if this happens to you. You have to ask yourself this, some of the following questions, which are, were any of your findings surprising? And if they're surprising, can they be useful? And the ones you went, didn't anticipate. Is there any of the machinery you created useful? The data flows or visualizations? These are things we talked about prepping for. If you hadn't done that, you're gonna to have to look for that now as part of the process. Is a negative result meaningful here? That is, you know, will the lack of a modelable solution or lack of a 
mildly competent solution actually helpful. If you come up and if you assume that what you had done is really, really good work and you, you find out that you just can't model the situation, is that fundamental knowledge actually useful to the client too to say, this is just too disparate. It's not that we're dumb. It's not that we can't do this. It's that you just can't fundamentally model this with what we know so far. Can a partial solution be salvaged? That is, if you can't model it all the way to the end and automate the process, can you automate it 80% of the way and have a human carry it the rest of the way across the goal line? What does that look like? What if you get ideas about how things work and if you get those things together close enough, it won't take a lot of effort from a human to actually complete whatever task it is that the client wanted you to do. So my example of a pivot that I actually had to experience was from a client where I was supposed to come up with a schedule to distribute fashionable items across European countries. I'll just keep it high level because I can't say more. Now, ultimately, I couldn't come up with anything better than just using the, on a, they were a chain, so they had stores that had you know bigger stores and smaller stores spread out across Europe. And so one way that they did it was they actually just proportioned their distribution by store volume. If a, one store sold twice as much as another store, then they, for whatever fashionable item they had, they would just give the big store twice as much as the smaller store in that particular case and all the way across the uh, across their chains. So they already had come up with that algorithm. Could they do anything better? And it turns out, at least I couldn't. That weighting model of saying uh, stores that are twice as big get twice as much stuff was beating anything else that I could do. So that's kind of a failure, right? Why would they pay a high-end data scientist for something as simple as big stores get more stuff? And they already knew that. So I hunted for some nuggets that they could possibly use after hiring me to do this or hiring our group to do this. The one that they liked the most was that I identified a diverse set of stores that were not thought to be similar, but they actually were. They turned out to be in regions of Europe with large Greek Orthodox communities and followed a slightly different holiday sales calendar because of the slightly different uh, calendar that the Greek Orthodox Church followed. And they hadn't quite picked up on that. In hindsight, it's pretty obvious, but they hadn't found that. Again, the client wasn't as happy as if, if they could have been had I found something better than a store waiting volume solution that they already had in hand but they were happy with the insight that they had never had on the Greek Orthodox uh, church schedule stuff that they had never put together. So when I think of uh, uh, pivoting, when I think of pivoting, I, I think of an old Monty Python sketch about string where a guy walks into a marketing firm and wants them to sell a bunch of string that he has. In particular, he has 122,000 miles worth of string, but each of the strings are in, in lengths of three inches. And as they're brainstorming, they ask, well, what can you do with this? So I said, well, what, the string is water repellent. Guy goes, no, it's not. He goes, well, it, it's water resistant then? No, it's not. Fantastic. It's water absorbent. And they just stare at each other in dumbfound belief. And I think when I think of pivoting, that's the first thing that comes to mind. But sometimes you have to work through that sort of idea of saying, what is it we have? What's on the table in front of us to work with? Is it, you know, is it water resistant or is it water absorbent? <laughs> is one thing useful to us? Is the thing that we have actually useful to us in some sort of way? Even more important than pivoting is to understand that failure happens. And I'm not trying to be inspirational and say, you know, learn from your failures, but failure does happen. I mean, think about it. We should be used to it as data scientists in the sense that it's built into what we do. We train models that fail and learn and fail and learn, and we iterate on that failure process to get better and better models. We should be really familiar with failure as part of what we do. 
and we're a young discipline data science, the best we can hope for is to make some key innovations and also beg, borrow, and steal the best ideas from mature disciplines. And other mature disciplines have failure built into its foundations. We should not try to, to reinvent that wheel when we don't have to. In 1969, Richard Hamming accepted the Turing Award. In his speech, he noted, Newton could say, if I have seen a little farther than others, it is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. For us in the computer field, I am forced to say that today we stand on each other's feet. Perhaps the central problem we face in all computer science is how we are to get to the situation where we build on top of the work of others rather than redoing so much of it in trivially different ways. Science is supposed to be cumulative, not almost endless duplication of the same kind of things. So when we look around of seeing modules and seeing data science being done a dozen different ways by the same people, this is not a new phenomenon in, in computer science or in software, at least as far back as, as 1969 here with, with uh, Richard Hamming. He noted that that's a problem with, with software. We redo stuff. We should strive to not do that. We can do better. We're touching other areas or touching other industries and we should not only just help them solve their problems but we should actually learn and pull those things back into data science so that we can actually learn from them. Other disciplines have dealt with this failure and we've seen two ways here. The, the fishbone diagram and the, and the, and the uh, failure modes effect analysis. To recap, how do we deal with failure? We can proactively go after it. We can get the client to acknowledge how how they, the client themselves, affect success of the project by not getting you data, not getting you good data, and things like that, and making sure that they have skin in the game to actually, and acknowledge that they have a role in making this data science project success. It's not just because data science is magic, they have hard work to do as part of making, making this a success as you do as a data scientist. Anticipate failure as much as possible and account for it. And you can anticipate failure by the two methods that, at least the two of the methods that we showed here, using a fishbone diagram to lay out all the possible ways that your stuff can fail, or using a, a failure modes effect analysis to start laying out what the, what the really critical processes are that you need to deal with. As part of the data science project, you can build in a range of low to high probability successes. Make sure you have a bunch of easy wins such that if that's the only thing you get, you at least have given some value back to the client. And if you can get those those high risk, high probability of not success happening, a failure, that's, that's that should just be added, you know, added bonus. But at least get something that you know has an easy way of actually giving value back to the client. Learn to pivot. Learn to say, when you're in the midst of this stuff, don't just give up and throw your up your hands and cry. Make sure that when you gather data, you're thinking about what are the things I can learn that I didn't lay out at the outset. Can I pivot? Can I put things together that I didn't see before or that the client didn't see before? What can you do to get to to salvage a data science project? You're get, if you do more and more data science projects, you'll get better and better at this. And don't get discouraged. You can be doing this for a long time. I've said this before. It's a marathon, not a sprint. You're going to fall down a lot. Don't worry. Learn how to learn from your failures. Like I said, I hate being trite, but there really is no way. This is new, a new discipline. You're going to need to learn how to learn from your failures. And that's it. This was a failure of a podcast or a podcast on failures, I guess. Um, I think it's really it's one of the more important actually podcasts I think I've done so far is to learn how to deal with this because 
this is really the core. You need to be able to deal with this because you're going to do it a lot. You're going to fail and you need to work your way through it. So anyway, that's it. I'm Matt Pettis. Keep fighting the good fight and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Thanks.